Our Father, we thank you that you've given us the privilege of being in such a special seminar. Lord, we're all here because we want to be the best grandparents to our grandchildren that you want us to be. So we pray that you'll give us ears to hear, hearts to obey, help us to do what's right, what would be best for our grandchildren to point them to Christ. We pray that your hand would be upon Larry today as he teaches us. We pray that you'll help us to absorb all the information and then put it into practice. And may our, may our grandchildren greatly benefit from us. Lord, we realize that it all begins with our relationship with you. So we pray that that will be everything you want it to be. We pray that you give Larry strength and endurance for a long day of teaching. And this we ask, Lord, with confidence, because we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Larry, you're on. Well, did you get a good night's sleep? Who was it that was telling us a story? She woke up at 3 a.m. and started reading Grandparenting with Grace. Yes. Everyone got a good night's sleep except for Julie. Julie was telling Gladina me that she woke up in the middle of the night and started reading the book and got about half of it read already. So she's going to give a book report. (laughs) It is a delight to be with you. I enjoyed very much our time together last evening. And not all of you were here, but most of you. I look forward to the day ahead. So appreciate Pastor Steve's prayer that the Lord would give us energy and clarity of mind and warmth of heart. Let me ask you a question. How many of you came to faith in Christ by the time of 18, by the time you're 18 years old? Look around, friends. That's probably two-thirds of the people in the room. My hand was up, too. A related question. For those of you that came to faith in Christ as a child or a teen, how many of you heard the gospel from someone in your family? Yeah, I would say the majority of people raised their hands on the first question, raised their hands on the second question. That was my case. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. My dad was a godly truck driver. As I got older, I used to tease him and say, Dad, you're one of the most godly truck drivers I've ever met. The competition's not real steep, Dad. (laughs) Uh, My apologies to any truckers in the room, but um, my dad truly was a godly trucker and a dad, and a husband to my mother. My mom was a homemaker. They were what we would consider in America just simple people. We were economically challenged. Grew up in a coal mining village. My dad drove a coal truck. But we were financially poor and spiritually rich. And when I was a young adult, my mother apologized to me. She said, Larry, I'm so sorry your dad and I weren't able to help you with your college expenses. I had to work in a factory, work my way through college. She said, I'm just so sorry we couldn't help you. And I said, Mom, I said, I grew up financially poor but spiritually rich. I would much rather have that than the other way around, to be financially rich and spiritually poor. So I had that privilege, and I heard the gospel from my parents from before I could remember. (laughs) But I remember my dad sitting at the kitchen table with his big King James Bible, you know, and explaining to me why I needed to be right with God. My mom answering questions in the car. 
driving to get groceries, whatever, you know, and just privileged that way. And some of you heard the gospel from your parents. Some of you maybe from your grandparents. Our first session today, we want to talk about the important subject of why does my grandchild need the gospel? Why does my grandchild need the gospel? If you have a notebook with you and you're a note taker, I would encourage you to follow along as best you can. But we want to ask the question, who are these grandchildren of mine? And I realize there's a few of you here that are looking forward to becoming grandparents. So we have a few people with us today who haven't entered that glorious time of life yet of grandparenting. Some of you have adult grandkids and even great-grandkids. So we have a spectrum here. But when you think about those grandkids, especially the younger grandkids in your life, and ask the question, who is this? There's times when you do ask that. (laughs) Who who is this grandchild of mine? And to find answers for that, we're going to go back to the beginning. And so if you have a Bible or if you want to look in your notebook, some of these verses are in there. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. That's a great place to start, isn't it? Genesis chapter 1. In my Bible, it's the very first page. Uh, Genesis 1. I'm going to read verses 26, 27, 28. The Holy Spirit moved Moses to write this. Then God said, let us make man, or we could even say mankind, in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what we're doing now is we're looking at God's word and we're applying the truth we're learning to our grandchildren. Who is this grandson of mine? Who is this granddaughter of mine? And right here in these few verses, what have we already seen? They're created by, in his, okay, that's real important. If we as grandparents are going to approach grandparenting from a biblical perspective, if our paradigm of looking at grandparenting is going to be in line with God's word, I think this is a very important place to start. That those grandchildren of mine were created by God in his image. Now let's think of that first word, created, by God. Created. What does that tell us about your grandson, your granddaughter? I think of this in arrows. I'm a pretty simple person. You've already figured that out if you were here last night. I'm a pretty simple person. So I think of this, I think of this arrow, this down arrow, coming down to each of us, from God to me. I was made, my wife was made, our children were made, our grandchildren were made, dependent on God. And and I think we know that. Like if God hadn't ordained this, none of us would be born. Our grandchildren would not have been born. So created by God, my grandchild is dependent on God for life itself. But think about it for a minute. Not only for life itself, but for God's explanation of life. And so if we're going to understand anything truly, if we're going to understand anything truly, we have to get our perspective from God. He's not only the giver of life, he's the explainer of life. He defines things. He tells us what is true and what is false. 
what is right and what is wrong. He's God. He created us. There's that dependence on God. But there's also that accountability to God. So there's an arrow going back up. So I'm dependent on our grandchildren. We'll stick with the grandkids. Our grandchildren are dependent on God, not only for life, but for his explanation of life. All knowledge is derivative. All true knowledge is derived from God and his explanation. But we're also accountable to God. This is just a very short rabbit trail. But have you ever wondered why the non-Christian world is so viciously opposed to the biblical doctrine of creation? Have you ever wondered, why, why do they get so passionate about that? Why? They don't want to be accountable. I mean, if God made me, if God made me, that's, he owns me. If he is the author of my life, he has authority over my life. If he's the author of my life, he has authority over my life, and I can't stand that idea. I cannot stand the idea that I'm going to give an account to God, so let's just dismiss this whole God talk. And so the doctrine of biblical creation is passionately denied in the non-Christian world. It's not just, well, I'm not sure. It's passionately denied. And I think this is at the heart of it all. There's a denial of accountability to God. But if you're going to understand your grandchild, think about them as being created by God. And so, dependent on God for life and for his explanation of everything in life, and accountability to God as a creator God. Created in his image. Being image bearers has some fascinating dynamics to it. And on one of them, um, I'm going to give you three words that begin with the letter R. And uh, this kind of helps me think about image bearing. I'm not saying this is exhaustive, but this does give us a pretty good picture of what being an image bearer is. One aspect of being an image bearer is relate. That's an R word. Relate to God. Human beings were made to relate to God like no other created animal or thing. Everything was made by God, but only human beings. Human beings are in a category all their own. And there again, we're living in a culture that's trying to level everything out, that we're just a higher animal. (laughs) No, we're not in a higher strata. We're in our own category. As human beings, as human beings, all human beings, no matter what your ability or disability, race, ethnicity, age, doesn't matter what it is, every human being is an image bearer And as an image bearer, we all were made to relate to God. We were designed to have a relationship with him like no other created thing. But we're also made to reflect God. There are certain, as the second R word, to reflect God. There are aspects of God's nature that he put into human beings. Some he reserved for himself. Name something that only God is. Only God is omniscient. Only God knows all things. Only God is sovereign and control of all things. Yeah, there are certain things, certain attributes that God reserved for himself. But there are many other attributes of God that he wants to be seen in his image bearers. That we are to reflect him. And so even when human beings, you know, pick an admirable attribute. If you see a human being who's compassionate. They're actually reflecting the attribute of God, his compassion. We are image bearers reflecting God. And then that third R word is the word represent. 
And that's a word that I think pictures what God said when he made mankind. He says, let them rule, let them have dominion. That you and I are designed by God to be representatives here on this earth. That we are to manage the earth under his authority and for his glory. And so you say, well, that isn't working out very well, is it? Well, we'll get to why it isn't working out in a few minutes. But human beings, Adam and Eve, were made to represent God in managing the earth. They were over the animals, over the plants, and they were to manage it in its name. By the way, this is a fascinating thing if you're studying your Bible. Now, where does the Bible begin? In a, in a garden, in a paradise. Where does the Bible end, Revelation 21, 22? In a paradise. The Bible begins and ends in a garden. In a paradise. And everything in between the first three chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation is how we get from there to there. <laughs> it's, all, it's all the story of God's redemption. <laughs> you know, but it begins and ends in a garden because God designed us as image bearers to rule the earth in his name. People say sometimes, I don't know if I'm looking forward to heaven. I mean, sitting on a club playing a harp forever and ever, that's going to get boring. Well, that's not what we're going to be doing. <laughs> Read Revelation 22. Revelation 22, there in that first paragraph, it says that we will rule with Christ. You know what that means? We're going to do what Adam and Eve were designed to do and failed at. But because of Christ, the perfect image bearer, those of us that are in the image of Christ, those of us who are redeemed human beings, we're going to be doing forever and ever what Adam and Eve were designed to do and failed at. Uh, on the new heavens, the new earth, they're merged, new heavens and new earth, we are going to be ruling alongside of Christ. We're going to be princes and princesses. For you lovers of Chronicles of Narnia, that's why C.S. Lewis pictured the children as having crowns. That's exactly right. We're going to be princes and princesses under King Jesus, doing what Adam and Eve were designed to do. So God made us as image bearers. Some of you are sitting there saying, that sounds kind of ideal because I sure don't see that. So, so what happened? <laughs> that's what we were designed. So when you think about your grandchildren, that's who your grandchildren were designed to be. They were designed, created by God, dependent on God for life and his explanation of life, accountable to God as the one with authority. And they were designed to relate to God, to reflect God, and to represent God on this earth. That's who your grandchildren are. Let's go ahead a few pages in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. And there's a verse that might be considered by some a flyover verse, but if you, if you park your plane here for a minute and read it, it's very insightful when you think about who are these grandchildren of mine. Genesis chapter 5 begins like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. We just read about that. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in... Some of you are reading this? In his own likeness. After his image and named him Seth. So Seth, born to a fallen Adam and Eve, was born not only with the image of his creator, but with the image of his father. What does that mean? 
What does that mean? That means Seth was born, as were Adam and Eve's other children, as a fallen image bearer. As a fallen image bearer. Still an image bearer, but a fallen image bearer. By the way, a fun story. (laughs) My wife and I enjoy having our grandkids every summer for usually about five days, 24 hours, you know, for five days. And we call it Grand Camp. (laughs) We've done this for five years now. And the grandkids look forward to it. And every year we start planning. As soon as one's done, we we get some sleep, you know, one night. And then we start planning the next year. (laughs) But I try to pick a theme for every grand camp. And we've done things like the Proverbs, parables of Christ. But one year I very deliberately picked the subject of being image bearers. And I asked Gladine if she'd go to like Dollar Tree or someplace like that and get these inexpensive mirrors. I wanted each of the grandkids to have a mirror. And I was using that as an object lesson during the week that, uh, you know, hey, grandkids, you are all a reflection. You're a mirror of Jesus Christ. You were made to be a reflection of God. But I was going to have them all go outside and we were going to crack some of those mirrors and smear some mud on them. And um, they were dirty, cracked mirrors. And then ask the children, Is, are you still a mirror? Yes, but look at your mirror now. You know, it's muddied and cracked by sin, by fallenness. But you're still a mirror. And you need Jesus Christ. You need His Holy Spirit to come and clean off your mirror and make you whole again so that you would reflect Christ. You know? And I had this very wonderful plan. And so when I announced to kids what we were going to do, we are going to go outside and do this, one of our granddaughters, and she started crying, I don't want to break my mirror. <laughs> and I thought, theologically, that's a good thing. <laughs> but it blows my illustration. <laughs> so we just had to talk about it. I wasn't going to have trauma the first day of grand camp. <laughs> but I was just trying to use a very simple illustration with the grandkids, that they were designed by God to be mirrors, to be reflectors of God. But the problem is the mirrors are still mirrors, but now the mirrors are cracked and broken. They're muddied by sin and the effects of the fall, the curse. Now, how does that relate to us as grandparents? When we think about our grandkids, how does all that relate? You know, many people in our culture, I would guess the majority of people in our culture, I can't prove this statistically, but I would guess most people in our culture look at children as being born tabula rasa, any of you remember Latin from school? Hey, there's one. <laughs> there's two. <laughs> Tabula rasa means what? Blank slate. It just means blank slate. And that would be the predominant view in our culture that when babies are born, babies are born just blank slates. And so if they turn out good, it's because people wrote good stuff on their lives. If they turn out bad, it's because people wrote bad things on their lives. They're, they're born tabula rasa. And you know, I even hear Christian grandparents sometimes, maybe not theologically, but naively adopt this view. And I mentioned this briefly last night, but a lot of grandparents talk about their grandkids and they'll say things like this, I've got good grandkids. And I want to say, well, that's wonderful. (laughs) You know, but they'll say things like, "As as long as we can keep them away from premarital sex, drugs, alcohol, you know, pornography, as long as we can keep my good grandkids away from all these things, they'll be fine. They're they're good kids. And I want to say, yes, do your best to keep them away from these evil influences, but that's still not going to solve the problem because the kid's problem isn't just out there. It's 
in here. It's in here. That there's a sin problem, isn't there? Your grandchildren, my grandchildren, as hard as it is to accept, when you look at your sweet little granddaughter and say, she's my little angel. (laughs) As hard as it might be for you, when you think about your grandchildren, yes, they are image bearers of God, but they are fallen image bearers. So let's just think for a minute, and this is real important. If we're going to help our grandchildren, if we're going to be maybe not the primary disciples in their lives, ideally that would be the parents, but if we're going to be helpers, secondary disciples in the lives of our grandchildren, it's real important to think through where are we starting here. So when you think about your grandkids, think about what the Bible's teaching us, even in these opening chapters. My grandchild was made dependent on God. Now, apart from God's intervening grace, how does that grandchild see his or her life? Do they, do they say, yes, I'm dependent on God? I remember one time, pastorally, we had a family in a church that had a rebellious teenage daughter. And um, I would, well, by the way, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Help me remember where I was. I just looked down and saw these again. Any of you ladies, Tanya, we want you to be able to see your Bible. This family in our church had a rebellious teenage daughter, and they, couldn't, they just felt like they were at the end of the rope, and, and they came to see me. They brought their daughter to see me. That was kind of awkward, actually. So this teenage girl sitting there, and parents want me to fix her, I think, and, uh, and, and I said, you know, what's going on? And she says, I don't know what they're so upset about. It's my life! And I, lo- I, I looked at this girl, and I hadn't premeditated this, but I, I, I looked at her, and I paused and looked there and I says, where in the world did you get that idea? Where in the world did you get that idea? It's, it's my life. But you see that in our culture, that, that paradigm, it's my life, is not challenged, it's encouraged, it's celebrated. And biblically, I mean, here we are trying to frame our understanding of grandparents from the Word of God, not the culture. And we understand our grandchildren belong to God because He's the Creator. He, he designed them, He created them. And so, but here sin comes and distorts that, it twists that. And children, apart from God's intervening grace, will think, it's my life. That whole sense of dependence is lost. And that whole idea of accountability and independence that, that God not only gives us life, but he gives us his definition of life. He gives us his explanation of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. And sin comes and says, I'm not created by God. I am not dependent on God. I'm not accountable to God. And, and our culture encourages the kids by saying things like, you, you just need to be true to yourself. You, you, just need, you just need to find your truth. And if your kids are in public education, this, this is endemic. This is very much part of the whole model. That kids are being told, if you want to have a happy life, you need to determine what's true for you. And what's true for you might not be true for someone else. But who does that make the child to be? It makes the child to be his own God, her own God. It all starts with me. And we were going out of a store recently and a teenage girl was coming in the door and she had a t-shirt on that said, follow your heart. And I almost stopped her and said, girl, that ain't going to turn out well. (laughs) 
but I realize they might not have let me back in the store. <laughs> but, you know, think about that. Follow your heart. <laughs> well, if you have a heart bent away from God, that's just going to go down the wrong path, isn't it? But, but you've heard those sayings. And, and the thing is, that's not only tolerated in our culture, it's celebrated and it's defended. That if you would say, ah... You know, I don't think the kids ought to be hearing that they find their own truth. I think God's the one who tells us what's true. The, the world's going to look at you and start calling you names. You bigot, you narrow-minded, you hater. <laughs> you know, but that, friends, grandparents, that's the world we're living in. That's the world our grandkids are growing up in. So our grandchildren are born image bearers, but they're fallen image bearers. They... They got something from us, didn't they? What did they get from us? A sin nature. That's humbling, isn't it? I can still remember. Our son is 43. And I can still remember when he was about two years old, he was helping me do some yard work. And I was moving some dirt around in our yard to fill in a hole or something. And I look over at our David, and he had brown saliva coming out of both corners of his mouth. And I, I can see it to this day. I said, David, you have dirt in your mouth. And he looked me in the eye and paused and went. <laughs> and I started crying. Because he was our firstborn. And I realized my son just chose to lie to me. And I couldn't stop him. I could correct him. But I couldn't stop him. That he chose to lie as a two-year-old. He chose to sin. And I realized standing in our driveway, he has my sin nature. He inherited that from me. I got it from my parents. They got it from their parents. The whole way back to Adam and Eve. We're all made in Adam's likeness as well as God's likeness. If you're going to help your grandchildren... Approach them from God's perspective. Love them to pieces. But realize that they're made not only in God's image, they're made in our image. They're fallen image bearers. If you're struggling with this, and I imagine here at Lakeside, not too many of you do because you've been well taught. But let's look at some verses in the Bible that teach us that children are sinners. Genesis 8.21. Genesis 8.21. The intentions of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or a fairly well-known passage in the Bible, Romans 3, 9 through 23. Verse 23 is probably the most well-known verse in that section. For everyone over the age of 18 have sinned and fall short. You're not going to let me get away with that, are you? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we could read other passages. And so your grandchildren, our grandchildren, are image bearers, but fallen image bearers, born sinful. And that twists their whole idea. That twists their whole paradigm of who they are, what matters in life, where truth is found. And if that is not lovingly intervene with God's word, his grace. Children are just going to go on in life. They're young fools and they're going to become mature fools if God doesn't turn them from that path. And they're going to approach life with that old concept of it's my life. 
I can identify however I want because I'll determine my own identity instead of listening from God. So sometimes I run into people who, Christians who say, well, my grandchild's growing up in the church. Doesn't that count for something? Well, if they're growing up in a good church, a Bible-believing church, a Bible-teaching church, a Bible-living church, that's a blessing from God. But that's not automatic, is it? And in some church circles, I was talking to someone just recently that grew up in a church that was not teaching the Bible. And, uh, you know, if, if that's not challenged, people can think that going to church or having Christian parents is a ticket to heaven. But there were people in Jesus' day that thought that way too, didn't they? And Jesus says, don't tell me you're children of Abraham. Because <laughs> Abraham looked forward to me. He believed in me. And you won't even listen to me. You won't believe me. He says, God could raise up children out of these rocks. You know, so Jesus challenged that in his day. And we need to be careful we don't fall into that naive trap that just being around church or having Christian parents is enough. What's that old saying? Being in a garage doesn't necessarily make you a car. (laughs) Any more than being in a church makes you a Christian. (laughs) Children need conversion, don't they? John, in his prologue to his gospel, said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So our grandchildren need the gospel. Our grandchildren need to be saved. They need new hearts. Let me deal with a couple questions I get asked sometimes. One question It's difficult to deal with, but people say, well, how old does a child have to be to be saved? I don't know if I'm going to step on any toes here, so I'll ask forgiveness ahead of time. I grew up in a church, it might have changed since then, but when I was growing up as a kid, I often heard this phrase, age of accountability, that children are innocent until they reach an age of accountability. And I just kind of adopted that as a young person, that there must be some age of accountability. And I started looking for that in the Bible. Could you show me, could you show me in the Bible where it talks about an age of accountability? I, I don't see it. I mean, I, I'm willing to be corrected. If some of you want to find it and catch me on break, I'll apologize in the next session. But I don't find it in the Bible. I don't find the Bible ever saying a child is innocent until age 6 or age 10 or age 12 or 18 or whatever age you put on it. I don't think the Bible ever teaches an age of accountability. There does, there does seem to be some verses in the Bible that imply comprehension level or something. I think of Deuteronomy 139 where Moses is talking to the people who are, are going to enter the promised land and those who aren't. <laughs> and he says in that Deuteronomy 139, he says, As for your little ones... You who said, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. And there's a couple other verses that imply similar things, that there does seem to be an age of comprehension where children begin to understand sin and their need for Christ. You know, when is that, friends? As a grandparent, sometimes we're trying to understand things that the Bible never explains explicitly. And I don't think the Bible gives an age where, you know, it says, well, this child's now old enough to be saved, so you don't need to deal with sin issues until they get to that age. You know? 
I don't think there's an age in the Bible where you say now a child is savable. I would personally say, this is just a pastoral comment, that if a child's old enough to understand sin, a child is old enough to understand his need for a savior. And it might be in simple terms, but I would encourage us as grandparents not to go passive on this issue of sharing the gospel until a child is six or 10 or 12 or whatever age you want to you know, artificially put on that child. I don't think we wait for a certain age to begin talking to our grandchildren about their need for Christ. I think even from the youngest ages, even if you have grandchildren in utero, not even born yet, you begin to pray. Even if, you, even if they're not even in utero yet, they're just in your wishes. <laughs> I wish I had a grandchild. I wish I had more grandchildren. That you pray for that grandchild's salvation. So we can begin even before they're born to begin praying for their salvation because we know, we know that our grandchildren are being born in God's image and they're going to be born in our image and they're going to need a savior. And so we pray for their salvation but also from the earliest ages where I call it watering the grass. We're just always watering the grass. You know, the, the, we're, we're just, as an, in, just in the ebb and flow of life. You know, just as we live around our grandchildren, we're with them, we're texting them, we're video calling them, they're visiting on holidays, we're going to see them. We're talking about Jesus Christ. And it doesn't have to come across as a sermon to the kids. You know, that we can be sharing with them things we've read in the Bible. We can be sharing with them our testimony. We can be talking to them about what we heard in the worship service. We, we can be sharing Christian songs with them. But, but we want to have homes one of homes where the culture is centered on Christ. Remember when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are the aroma of Christ? Think about that for a minute. We're the aroma of Christ. You know, could, can you remember what your grandparents' home smelled like? Some of you can. I didn't grow up in an Italian home, but in the coal mining village I grew up with, there was the Gaginis. <laughs> and the Gaginis lived a few houses away. And they were immigrants. They, they, they got off the boat, <laughs> literally. And um, if you walked into the Gagini home, you, you could smell the tomatoes and the spices and the oregano. You, you, you couldn't help but smell the Italian flavors walking in the Gaginis' home. And their grandchildren lived in the village too. And I've often thought, those grandkids, anytime they smell that wonderful smell, they're going to think of their grandparents. One of my grandfathers always chewed beech nut gum. <laughs> and when I was around him, he always smelled like beech nut gum. <laughs> you know, you think about, some of you can remember particular smells in your grandparents' home. Wouldn't it be wonderful when we're long in heaven if our grandchildren are telling their grandchildren, my grandparents' home always smelled like Jesus. My grandparents' home always smelled like Jesus. When, when you were with them, now they're talking about you. When we were with them, they were always talking about Jesus. It was just part of the way we are. It's what we talk about. It's who we talk about. And if your grandchildren need the gospel, then why wait for an artificial age when you begin the topic, begin the conversation? When they're tiny. When they're tiny. 
You're already talking to them. You're praying over them. You're reading to them. And so I would encourage you to, to think of ways, very practical. We're going to get real practical here. Think of ways you could have a Christ-centered home. One thing that I think every grandparent should do and can do is have Christ-centered books in your home. Christ-centered books in your home as a grandparent. You have to think of the age appropriateness. You know, are they two or are they 22? But you got books in your home that, that reflect Christ and His grace. There are a lot of Christian books out there that aren't really Christian books. <laughs> and uh, let, let me uh, rock your boat just a little bit here. But if you think of most children's book on the story of David and Goliath, what's the point of the book? You know, just summarize it for me. What's the point of the story of David and Goliath in a child's book? They want the children to be like David. Be like David. Go kill your giants. <laughs> Friends, if we were to somehow insert ourselves into the biblical story of David and Goliath, who would represent us in that story? The Israelites that are running away. That's who we are in this story. We're the Israelites that are running away from Goliath. We're the afraid soldiers. Who does David represent, figuratively speaking, in the story? Christ. And, but you can pick up so many children's books that are mere moralisms. And they come across with, be a good person. Be courageous like David. Be a good person. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. And those might be fun stories, but you want books in your home that show the child who Jesus is and show them how much they need Jesus. And so if you're perusing a book saying, I wonder if we should buy this for our home, ask yourself the question, where is Christ in this book? Where is Christ in this book? And if you can't answer that clearly, Put it down and look for another book. Now, the good news is, I'm talking to my peers here, my fellow grandparents. The good news is, there are more Christ-centered books for kids today than they were when we were raising our kids. You know, we think things are getting worse. Well, some things are getting better. And one thing that's getting better is there are more Christ-centered books today for adults, and there are more Christ-centered books for kids today than there maybe have ever been. And there are people writing some excellent books that are Christ-centered. And, um, you know, you can catch me on break. I might be able to tell you a few. Gladine might be able to remember a few as well. But, but I just even think uh, our friend Marty Michalski, just, it's spelled like it sounds, Marty Michalski. <laughs> I don't know how he spells it. <laughs> no, I do, actually. <laughs> but Marty is a pastor in the Philadelphia area, but he... I don't know how he. Do, I do know how he does it. He just keeps cranking out books for kids that are so Christ-centered. We're, we're friends, and and we saw him a few months ago. He asked me what book I'm working on now. He's always working on books. I asked him one time. I says, Marty, how do you keep cranking out books? He said, I write from five to seven every morning. He says, Why don't you do that? And I said, Because I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> But the last book, the grandparenting book, guess how it got done? Five to seven. <laughs> Five to seven. <laughs> but one of our granddaughters loves his book. Don't blame the mud. Don't blame the mud. <laughs> and he writes for, that book is written for mm, third, fourth graders, maybe fifth graders. 
But it's a made-up story of a little boy who has new clothes and he wants to wear his new clothes to go somewhere and, and his parents tell him, yeah, you can do it, but don't get in the mud. Well, guess what the little boy does? He gets in the mud and he comes home and his new clothes are all covered in mud and, and so he tries to hide it from his parents. So he takes off his muddy clothes and stuffs them under the bed and gets cleaned up and, and his parents were born at night but not last night. <laughs> They see the muddy footprints, they can spot the muddy clothes under the bed, and they challenge him on that, and he begins to blame the mud. It's not my fault, it's the mud's fault. And the dad had explained to him, no, it's not the mud's fault, it's your fault. And the whole thing is this picture of sin, that we tend, it's not my fault, I couldn't help it, that I lied, that I stole, that I was mean, I couldn't help it, you know, and they blame the mud, and no... You don't blame the mud. You chose to sin. And you need Christ. And it's a beautiful little book you can read to a child. And I don't know how many times Gladine's read it to Ellie, but she, she asks for it pretty regularly. She goes and gets it and says, uh, can you read it to me again? But there are books like that. Go look for books. New Growth Press has done a lot of books. They're gospel-centered for kids. And you, know, there might, you might be looking for books that are for older kids, teenagers. But I would encourage you to have in your home as a grandparent books that you can read to younger kids, and as they get older, books that they can read themselves. And so in our family room, we have a section of like autobiographies, missionaries, Christians, well-known Christians, Corey Ten Boom, people like that, that when the kids are there for any length of time, if they have time to read, they're welcome to go down there and pick one of those and read them. We can talk about it. Look for books. Look for books that will point the kids to Christ. Videos, if you download or even buy CDs, some people still do that, right? Buy CDs. Uh, I don't know who told us about it originally. It doesn't matter. But for the last four or five years, we've enjoyed torch lighters. Any of you familiar with torch lighters? Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs has done these 30-minute animated stories of Christians over the centuries who have been willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And some of them go way back to like 3rd, 4th century. Perpetua, 3rd century, 4th century, something like that. Up to more modern times, people like Corey Ten Boom, Richard Warmbrand. But they have these 30-minute videos. In a grand camp, when the kids at our house for five days round the clock, we always want them to wind down in the evening, right? They're with their cousins or with their siblings. We want them to wind down. So one thing we do at grand camp, to wind down in the evening, we might make some popcorn or whatever, and they're allowed to pick which of the torchlighters they want to watch. And these torchlighter videos are very centered on Christ, showing the value of Christ, that he's worth living for, he's worth suffering for, he's worth dying for. And so the kids are getting exposed to these people that realize Jesus Christ is worth more than anything this world has to offer. Worth more than everything this world has to offer. So have in your home, if possible, you can download torchlighters too if you're on, I think Amazon Prime has a lot of them. But, but look for books, look for videos. You want your home to be a place where the grandkids can hear the gospel from you. They can find it in books you have, videos you have. So look for ways to show your grandkids their need for Jesus Christ. You can stir their hearts too just by asking them questions. And you might think of questions you could ask your children, like if they go to church and they go to Sunday school, you know, hey, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? One of our granddaughters, 
she's faithful going to Sunday school, but she's, she's quieter than some of the other kids. So, you know, I'd say, well, tell me, what did you learn in Sunday school? And she'll, she'll do this, you know, like, <laughs> was it in the Old Testament or was it the New Testament? I'm trying to <laughs> draw her out, you know, and, you know, but you can just seize opportunities to help the kids think spiritually, to think about Christ, what they heard in the worship service. What they learned in Sunday school. If they're going to a Christian school, tell me what, how school's going for you. What are you learning about the Lord? And, but you're trying to do this with them. You're trying to help them think vertically in life, not just horizontally. You know, you're looking for ways to draw their attention to God, His grace, their need for Christ. And then you want to talk to your children very explicitly, not just water the grass, but you want to have a conversation with them about their need for Christ. I think I've seen grandparents in different places on the spectrum on this issue. You know, some grandparents are very cautious and maybe a little bit nervous. I don't want to offend the kids. And, and they're a little too withdrawn, a little too passive here. You know, like, you know, I don't know if he's ready yet about this. And he'll bring it up when he's ready. And, but I've seen other grandparents that are so concerned that their grandkids get saved that they're pushing them. You know, just pushing them. And if you push on someone, what's a person's tendency? Push back. So I think we have to be careful. Where's the balance? May, may the Holy Spirit give us wisdom. To not be too passive, but on the other hand, not be too pushy. But to always be ready to talk to your grandchildren about the Lord and be willing to bring it up. And if your grandchild maybe seems to be under conviction, maybe with the parent's permission, you've had to deal with the child's sin issue. You know, if the grandkids are with you for a length of time, they're on a sleepover or they're on a vacation, ask the parents ahead of time, how do you want us to handle sin issues? You know, if your, grand, if your grandchild, if the parent's child sasses us or mean to the sibling or lies, how do you want us to handle that? So with parental permission, you might need to deal with your grandchild's sin and it's a wonderful opportunity in a way. It's not wonderful that your grandchild sin, but it's a wonderful opportunity to t- talk to your grandchild about the need for Christ. So what do you say? In Grandparenting with Grace, it's page 19. Yeah. Page 19, I give some bullet points. You know, I'm just going to say, I think some grandparents are hesitant to talk to their grandkids about their need for Christ because they don't know what to say. Or they're afraid they might say the wrong thing, so they don't say anything. But move toward the child and talk to them about their need for Christ. In these bullet points on page 19, I just, I'll just read some of them briefly. To talk to the child about who God is. That God's a holy God. And he made us for his glory. But the sad thing is, we often live for ourselves and we don't live for God. You know what, you know what the Bible calls that? Bible calls that sin. You know what sin deserves? Sin deserves punishment. There's only one person that ever lived who never sinned, and his name is Jesus. The way I explain it to kids is this. I have some in my pocket, brother. Fisherman's friend. I don't have fisherman's friend. I have. You're prepared. Jesus Christ is the only one who never sinned. He lived a life that we should have lived but didn't. I explain it to the kids that way. Jesus Christ is the only one that did that. He lived the life we should have lived but didn't. He lived a perfect life, always obeying his Father. 
Not only that, but then he turned around and died the death that we should have died, but didn't. He took our punishment. And then you talk to your grandchild about the need for Christ, the need to turn from sin, to repent, and turn toward Christ, to put their trust in him, asking him to give them forgiveness. Listen to the child, ask questions. What do you think about that? Or you know, you know your grandchild, but be willing to talk to grandchild very explicitly about their need for Christ, their need for salvation. And if a child, if it seems pretty obvious that the Spirit's working in a point where the child's ready to put their faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to not put words in the child's mouth. You know, sometimes. I don't know if it's true for anyone in this group, but sometimes people think if my grandchild's going to be really saved, they have to say the right words, you know? And so salvation is based on saying the prayer the right way or saying it with enough sincerity. I remember growing up as a kid wondering, did I pray? Was I really sincere? You know, <laughs> always questioning myself, was I sincere enough? As if salvation's dependent on me. In my sincerity or my choice of words. Salvation is a gift from God. Salvation is a miracle of God. And so I don't think you need to artificially force your grandchild into praying a particular word order or using the right theological words. Point them to Christ and see what the Holy Spirit does in drawing that child to him. Another question I get asked sometimes, and I'll deal with this briefly, is how, how can I tell if my grandchild's truly converted? We're all curious, you know. <laughs> is that grandchild truly converted? What I tell people when they ask me that is, I don't have a photocopy of the Book of Life. Did God give you one? <laughs> I mean, if you have a photocopy of the Book of Life, then you can know for sure. But I don't have a photocopy of the Book of Life. <laughs> So I think we need to be careful that we, we don't feel like we have to know for sure. But, on the other hand, I think we can be optimistic but not naive. I remember in our church years ago, you know, some person, I think it was a parent, not a grandparent, said, you know, I, I think my child's saved, like a three-year-old. And it's like, wow, tell me more about it, you know. And it's like, well, she said, I love Jesus. You know, and, and my daughter's a Christian now. She said she loves Jesus. And, but the problem is, five minutes later, she might say, and I love puppies, and I like peanut butter, you know. And, and so don't be naive, but neither be pessimistic. And I think a lot of grandparents, we're probably what are on the optimistic side. Like, we see any little thing. Oh, my grandchild's safe. There are other grandparents who are, are, are more, uh, what's a polite word, cautious. <laughs> And they're always doubting whether it's genuine or not. As Christians, we should be biblically optimistic, knowing that God can and does save children at times. And so if a grandchild really wants to follow Jesus Christ, to, to go with it. And then watch for fruit. Watch for fruit. Look for the fruit of perseverance. That's the fruit for all of us. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. Look for age-appropriate signs of repentance, you know, that child that was always picking on his siblings, is he now, not perfectly, but is he now more consistently kind to his siblings? That child that was characteristically disobedient, defiant, is that child now characteristically obedient? Is there a curiosity about the Word of God, even as a child? 
Is there a desire to know Christ, to worship him? You know, you begin to look for these things that are uh, apparently evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in that child's life. But even if you're not sure, I wouldn't discourage the child, but remind them of biblical truth. You know, just say, the Bible says that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we'll be saved. And, you know, for our grandchildren, even the ones that we think may be saved, you know, we, we say things like, you know, Lord, give, give our grandson, give our granddaughter a heart that loves you, a heart that wants to follow you. That's a good prayer, you know, and they hear us praying that way. And that as grandparents, we can be an instrument in their lives. What was one of the first verses we read last night? Psalm 78, so that they would set, some of you remember that, Psalm 78, 7, so that they might set their hope in God. That's our desire as grandparents. We realize that our grandchildren were made, created in the image of God, dependent on God, accountable to God. They were made to relate to God, made to relate to God. But they were not only made in the image of God, but they were made in our image. So they need Jesus Christ. And so we water the grass. In our homes, we're always exposing them to Christ, exposing them to the need of the gospel, exposing them to what the gospel's all about. And in the Lord's providence, there might be times when we are the instruments in his hand to explain the gospel very explicitly to our grandchild. And so depending on your grandchild's level of comprehension, age level, we go with that. And we talk to them very openly about Jesus Christ, what he did on behalf of sinners and dying on the cross about their need to turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith. We talk to them. And I don't think we need to avoid those conversations. I don't think we should push those conversations. But ready to go. Desirous to point them to Jesus Christ. And if a grandchild is saved, let's remember that they're going to continue to need the gospel. I think I grew up realizing that I needed God's grace to get saved, but then I thought after I was saved, it was more up to me to... You know, do it. Just be a good Christian. And it was only later that I realized that the gospel isn't the front door to the Christian life. It's not the front door to the house of the Christian life. The gospel is the house. That that we live in the context of the gospel. And so we continue to teach our saved grandchildren their need for the grace of God every day, just to live. I'm going to recommend a couple books here explain the gospel to a younger child, a grade school child. One of the best books I've ever read on this is called Show Them Jesus. Jot it down. Show Them Jesus, Teaching the Gospel to Kids. And it's written by Jack Klumpenhauer. You thought Machowski was hard. Klumpenhauer, K-L-U-M-P-E-N-H-O-W-E-R. And in that book, Jack Klumpenhauer shares an illustration that I've shared with our grandkids. I think it's, it's a wonderful... Most of us are old enough to remember report cards, right? Remember report cards? You know what I watch our grandkids doing now, our older grandkids? They get online the same day they took a test to find out how they did. I mean, they're in our house. They're, they're, you know, they're using the phone to find out how they did on that test today. Their grades are all out there on the cloud. <laughs> But back in our day, we had to take report cards home. And what had to happen? You had to get a parents to sign them. Was that scary or what? Jack uses that as an illustration. 
He said, if you had a spiritual report card, if you, child, sinful child, had a spiritual report card, what kind of grades would you get? You can ask your grandkids that. They might need some help answering it. But what kind of grades do you think we have as fallen image bearers? Every grade is an F. And you can go with that for a while. Talk about why that's true. But if Jesus got a report card, what would be on his card? Yeah, I said, all A's. And one granddaughter said, no, Papa, all A pluses. <laughs> You're right, sweetheart, all A pluses. Jack uses it as an illustration. He says to the kids, what if Jesus pulled out his report card, all A pluses. You pulled out your report card, all F's. And Jesus says, let me have your card. And you give him your all F card. And then he says, here, take my card. And he gives you his all A plus card. And then he says, go talk to my father, get his signature, so to speak. And you go before God the Father, and you present Jesus' report card. You know what the grandkids usually say? That's not fair. And you say, exactly. That's grace. That's grace. When we stand before God the Father, he sees his son. He sees Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When the Father looks at us as saved people, he sees the righteousness of his Son. And Jack uses that child illustration of report cards to teach the children what the gospel is. It's Jesus taking your failed report card and giving him his perfect report card. It's a good book. He actually wrote it for Sunday school teachers. <laughs> So even if you don't have physical children or grandchildren, it's good in other contexts as well. Show them Jesus. It's a good resource. We're going to take a break in just a few minutes. I'm going to explain the book table for the first time because this might be a good time if you want to go out there and look. Obviously, the book that we're talking most about is Grandparenting with Grace. 